and something like restaking will that make that a lot more clear where it's like, yeah, I got my ETH staked on L1, but I'm also staking on a bridge and I'm also getting these Oracle tokens. Like it's money. And that is the main thing that I think at some point in time, why ETH will actually flip Bitcoin is because it's actually used as money. Like the hard money meme of like, you just lock it away. I think that's good for some people, but over the long term, the assets that are used more as money, will just have a more heavier supply sink and we'll just trade a lot lighter. Hey everyone, wanted to give a quick shout out to the Wormhole Foundation. If you are a Bell Curve listener, you know that transferring across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That's why we are super pumped to have partnered with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. The Wormhole Protocol connects over 30 blockchains and six different runtimes, including Solana, Sui, Ethereum, Layer 2s, and more. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. You can claim that by just going down into the show notes and clicking on the link. All right, guys, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. You got Michaels one and two in Vance. Fellas, welcome. How we doing? Feeling good. Feeling good. First one back. I know. I know. Missed you guys. It's been a minute. Um, it's been a wild start to the year. We got uh, Bitcoin ETFs that finally got approved. Um, definitely shout out to James Seyfert and Eric Balkunas, who have been the gurus. And it's been nice to see them active on crypto Twitter, tweeting out some of our memes. That's made me smile. Uh, but, you know, we were just talking off air before we even get into Bitcoin ETF and flows and that whole discussion what's your guys sense of going into this year we were, we were just sort of chatting off air about i mean even if you bring it all the way back to last year everyone was so bearish going into 23 turned out to be quite a good year i feel like at the tail end of this last year uh people got extremely bullish and everyone accepted that it was going to be a soft landing and now maybe it looks like it's going to be a bit bumpier than that so how are you guys feeling generally on the more macro side of things feel feel pretty good um uh, you know, we were just talking about like we 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 all follow Tom Lee, um, who is like either the most hated person on Wall Street or like the one person who gets it right. Like, there's kind of no in between with Tom Lee, um, and he works for Fundstrat, and you know he's kind of known as this permable. And <clears throat> his whole philosophy for this year is that the S and P is going to 5200. You know, it's at 4700 right now, so that'd be a new all time high. Um, but the first half of the year is going to be choppy. Like you have like a lot of just like uncertainty with the election, uncertainty with rate cuts, uncertainty with QT turning into QE. But like ultimately, if you have like a long term perspective, like it's it's really hard to not be bullish. And like, what's the bear case for crypto? Like after the nuclear winter of 2022, the implosion of all the mainstay characters, like we we just kind of like randomly stall out and don't hit a new all time high. That just seems like, you know, you have to play for the most likely outcome and and that just doesn't feel like the most likely outcome. Um, And so, you know, there's always things that can happen, but I think if if you continue to see Trump election odds rally, you're going to see risk rally alongside it because that is just like certainty for the risk markets looking into 2025. And um, I've always been surprised at the people who are like, 
we're playing for the 2024 bull cycle. Like if we have a new administration, it's like 2024 to 2028. Um, lower interest rates, you know, kind of like the nihilistic capitalism that like Trump represents, whether you agree with it or not, is what's coming. What do you think, Michael? I think generally, you know, we're probably going to have a pretty bumpy ride the first quarter, maybe the first two quarters, um, just as people are starting to figure out what 2024 means. Um, Crypto-wise, I think there's a lot of po positive catalysts. Macro, um, there's also a lot of positive asymmetric catalysts. You know, maybe we get, you know, resolution in, in Ukraine. Maybe we get, you know, some of the uh, clarity on where the government is, is going um, election-wise and I think there's a lot of things that can become more clear over time. Um, so that'll help. But it does seem like, you know, it's going to be bumpy for the first couple of months, which is fine. Um, you know, I think that's just, you know, part of election cycles as well is, you know, the election year itself is usually one that's not, you know, the cleanest and the clearest, uh, at least from the outset, historically. Yeah. Do you guys still see macro being in the driver's seat for crypto for the most part? To a certain extent, yeah. Um, I mean, you're either dealing with headwinds or tailwinds and for what we're, um, looking at with crypto at least like rate hikes turn into rate cuts, QT turns into QE, Democrats turn into Republicans. Like it's always in the background and it's, um, it's been a long time coming as well. Like <laughs> the, the four consecutive 75 basis point increases relative to like even just staying st like stagnant with where they are is a huge shift in just the psychology of market participants. The, the one thing I will say on that though, is the market is pricing in at least where it currently stands. And let's assume, you know, typical price cuts, rate cuts, unless there's some massive, a, you know, endogenous shock, like, uh, you know, uh, a bank blows up or something where they actually need to cut rates, you know, hundreds of basis of points in, in a single meeting. The typical rate cycle is is not more than 25 bips per meeting. And the way that the markets are pricing current rate cuts for 2024 is that we have one uh, meeting coming up in a few weeks, probably a 0% chance that, that they cut rates there. Um, they're expecting that March could be that first rate cut. But then if you know the typical rate process holds, they're expecting rate cuts every single meeting for the rest of the year. I just fundamentally don't believe that that's going to be true. And so I think the markets are expecting more rate cuts than we're actually going to see, which in and of itself is a difference of where guidance is versus where, you know, expectation where expectations are versus where, you know, things actually land. So that I think is a, is a recognition that the markets will have to digest probably over the first, you know, six months as we start to see what March actually turns into, what April turns into, and then, you know, June, July, um, so one thing about markets, which is tough, is um, there's directionality, and but there's also guidance and expectations. And so you could have positive directionality of, you know, there are going to be rate cuts in 2024. But if everybody's expecting it to be 300 basis points, it only comes out at like 200 basis points. You know, that's, that's a negative, it's a negative change in and of itself, um, even though there's 200 basis point cuts, just because it wasn't what people were expecting, it's, it's viewed as a negative. So that that's the reason why I think it's going to get a little wonky. I think that's a really good point. I saw this discussion has started to crop up a little bit around even the Bitcoin ETF. And I saw I saw a chart or I saw someone tweeted out today like, hey, we had a, a trillion in inflows, but the price hasn't moved. Like makes a lot of sense. But 
price did move. It moved over the last six months in anticipation of those flows. So uh, it's kind of a meme in crypto because it's an immature market. A lot of retail participants and stuff doesn't get priced in till pretty late. But in TradFi, things do get priced in. There is a known set of expectations and performance relative to those expectations ends up mattering quite a bit. Short, short term, it does. Short term, it's all about how you perform versus expectations. Longer term, it's about the direction of where things are going. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question for you guys on maybe zooming more on in on the crypto side of things. How are you viewing, like I saw this tweet from Chris Berninski, who was talking about private market valuations. Um, so basically private deals in crypto tripping over themselves to keep up with public market memes, valuations and topic du jour, unrecognizable from Q3 2023, tipping into borderline excess. So I'd be, I'd be curious what you think. I think my mental model, which it would just basically just like in 2023, we saw rock bottom, you know, post FTX. And then I think something that confused a lot of people was the Solana, call it like mini bubble uh, or something. And I think that was just uh, that was mean reversion from like a, a massive dislocation in prices. And I think that maybe like got people's animal spirits firing a little bit more than they otherwise should have at this point in the cycle. And now we're kind of like treading water, but it's interesting. Like you guys obviously do professional investors. Like I do a little bit of angel investing and I've noticed like valuations have changed a lot in the last three months. And I'm wondering if you guys think that's frothy and what do you guys think about that? It's, it's definitely frothy in the private markets. Um, and I, and I think like if you break it down, what's happening is like something like a say, <clears throat> you know, which has not unlocked any of the tokens that belong to investors or the team. You know, they've done the airdrop, which is about one and a half billion. And then they've got the fully diluted, which is like seven or eight. And so projects are looking at that and saying, you know, look, um, I should be worth, you know, four to eight billion in the private markets because this thing is, um, you know, trading at eight billion in the public markets. And that belies the fact that the unlocks have not happened yet. And like, what happened in 2022 is like everyone was unlocked. And so the valuations reset very quickly because, you know, the public market comps were affected by just the stream of supply that was coming to market for the team and the investors. And so I think a lot of, you know, the private markets are, are benchmarked to like Chris calls it memes, uh, like FDV memes, uh, which I think is pretty accurate. You know, it's like, is that reflective of the real price of this when only 10% of it is unlocked? Probably not. Um, and so like, that's like the danger zone for investors when your comp is off and, you know, you're already admittedly not investing on fundamental value. Um, like, you know, if Celestia is making $75 a day and it's 20 billion FTV, it's like, you can't wire frame it from like the at fundamental perspective. And you also like, if you're using that as a comp, you know, theoretically you should be willing to pay, you know, anything up to 20 billion to, you know, bench to get to the next Celestia competitor. So I think it is a little bit off. Um, and like, if you roll back the clock to something like DeFi summer, like why did DeFi summer not last uh, longer than, you know, the April 2021 kind of peak, it was because of the unlocks. And so, you know, we're hyper dialed into like, what are unlocks going to look like for the major tokens that are coming to market this year, um, for, for their unlocks, Arbitrum, Celestia, um, whatever else, I think that'll dictate a lot of the private market valuations, but you know, other than that, if you're a private market investor um, and you've got like a four-year unlock schedule and you're investing right now, you're holding that thing through the next cycle. 
Well, so I, a couple of things. First off, I think this is why we have cycles in crypto. It's not because of like the happening and sure, like that's a meme that probably bolsters the, the, uh, the front end of the cycle. It doesn't really, you know, fix the back end. The back end is all about liquidity and who's selling and, you know, go figure that all of these, you know, tokens that raise at massive valuations have three-year unlock cycles and that, you know, the unlock cycle for a lot of these, these tokens are going to start probably in 12 months, eight months, 10 months from now, you know, whenever that first year cliff is, sometimes it's, it's 12 months, sometimes it's, you know, 18, 24 months, <clears throat> but then you start to get like this drip feed of tokens over the next 36 months after that, where, you know, you slowly have like, you build a, a position and you're, you're deciding whether or not you're an investor and, you know, you have these things marked at, I don't know, $12 billion fully diluted valuation. You're like, hmm, should I take some money off the table? And then things start to slide and now it goes down to 10 and you're like, oh man, I really need to take some money off the table now. And then, you know, your price action, because you're selling one or 2% of the protocol token from the seed round, pushes it down to like eight or six. I mean, that's the type of cycle that I think happens actually quite frequently with a lot of these new layer ones. DeFi summer, <clears throat> so I think of DeFi summer as being basically like June 2020 to September 2020. And the reason why DeFi summer didn't persist is because we lost like interesting new, you know, food coins to go farm. <clears throat> but then DeFi flatlined throughout fall 2020. But it's that cycle from 2021 where people invested and raised money in the 1920 era. And then you had AVAX, you had Solana, you had, you know, all the major kind of like alt L1s that were unlocking during that 2021 and 2022 cycle. That was the liquidity that I think, you know, was the catalyst or, or part of the process of bringing things down. But I think we're going to start to see a ton more similar examples of this. You know, anything that's over a $5 billion FTV expect that there's going to be some liquidity issues when everybody's trying to get out through the same door. And and just to get more specific, so like you can do things like called non-deliverable forwards to effectively like try to hedge your unlocks ahead of time. And you can probably do this like three or four months ahead of that unlock. And it, and it kind of like makes the derivatives markets and it's all settled on the derivatives market. Sorry, go for can it. You, can you explain what that is? What's a non-deliverable forward? So what you're basically doing is like you, you have the tokens and they're going to unlock, say, in like three or four months. You go to an OTC desk and you say, hey, I want to hedge this. And they say, okay, cool. Or, or maybe you do it yourself. Um, and they say, okay, we're going to start shorting the perp, you know, for you. And when your tokens become available, so like to, to close a short, you need to deliver the physical tokens. That's the concept of that. But like while you're doing this, you're shorting the perp. You know, people know that there's short interest on it. You're also paying fees you know, like in some of these perps, like I think in like the first week that Celestia launched, it was like people were paying like 300% per year to hedge this out. And so wow. like, you know, people see that they'll try to like squeeze the shorts. They'll try to like get you to add more collateral and like things like mobile coin. Like remember when that blew up and, and, you know, that was the result of an investor trying to hedge unlocks. And so like the volatility that comes with these unlocks is, I mean, sometimes not just to the downside. Sometimes it'll be like, you know, squeeze up and then like gap down. Um, but it just like creates that environment of like anxiety and volatility and nervousness around general unlocks. 
Uh, but keep in mind, though, anyone who has two, three, four percent of this token is not doing this because, frankly, they'd only be able to do it with about five percent of the total. So, like the size that you can put on, also the spread that these desks are charging is like ten percent. You know, if if they're shorting the perp, uh, you know, and they're quoting you one price, it's like okay, the price is trading at five dollars right now. <laughs> we're gonna you're gonna pay the fees, and we're gonna quote you like a fill rate of like four twenty five. As you try to sell this. So it, like it, it's massive spreads. They get to dictate the market and you can only do this with like single digit million dollars of volume. Like otherwise it, it, it's just too much to put on those, those contracts. Um, so any of the major investors I think are just not able to do this or they're doing it over the course of years where they just kind of roll a three month, you know, let's call it $5 million deliverable forward. And then they do it another, you know, $5 million three months later and then another 5 million and, you know, it's kind of a way of rolling out of it. Uh, but at that point, you might as well just T-WAP and just sell spot. Generally, I think it's a good idea for everyone to have a good sense of unlocks. And it's like publicly available information. Token.unlocks, I think it's a good website. And, you know, it's like one of the major components. What is the supply? Yeah. You know what this reminds me of? I think we've mentioned it once or twice on the show before, but... I don't know if you've ever heard DGen Spartan talk about why he thought that uh, DeFi summer came to an end. And he actually put uh, Sushi Swap as like a massive contributing factor because that's where you had like pool twos and super risky yield farming strategies going on. And it was just, there was such an incentive for liquidity. If you were holding on to this super liquid bag, you know, the game theory was like, this is probably the best time I'm ever going to get to sell this stuff. So everyone dumped it at the same time. And maybe like a mini thing happened like that with Blur as well, where it's like got these illiquid JPEGs. There's going to be a massive liquidity event, points, farming, all that stuff. So I'm going to dump it. And it's good long-term overall. You want more liquid markets, but in the short term, it could be dangerous. I mean, not to, to kind of pull it back to something we were previously talking about, um, James Seifert, Eric Balkumis, uh talk about how, you know, there is an interesting narrative around the inflows into these Bitcoin ETFs. <clears throat> the bigger thing and the harder thing to accomplish is to get ETFs with sizable volume and therefore low enough spreads, because that's where it becomes an attractive way for uh, you know traders to to arbitrage this. Eventually, you're going to have like options on these ETFs, uh, being able to have you know people who are probably trading like spot Bitcoin with a balance of you know the reverse on the ETF side, and you you know you're able to trade that that spread. Um, the liquidity here is ultimately what matters the most in, in the ETF world. And, and, you know, go figure that that's what matters most in these token worlds as well. Yeah. Just, I, like one more thing, like <clears throat> the psychology of all this pulled, pulled together is like, you know, say, um, your average L1 is raising at, you know, one to two to maybe even $3 billion, who knows? Um, and you know, you're kind of like doing this calculus of, um, you know, maybe if it, it trades, like say, you know, this still double, triple, or, um, you know, maybe if it's like near, that's like the floor, which is like a few billion. <clears throat> I think when you look at that and you look at what I would call just like the resounding success of these Bitcoin ETFs and like, sure, the price has not moved, but like Grayscale is dumping like billions of dollars of, of Bitcoin to, to re-solidify their balance sheet. And a lot of the GBTC outflows are, are another component, like do you think the success of, of Bitcoin on the, with the CTF or things like ETH that like, you know, if these flows continue, like the risk reward of that comparable to the private markets is basically the same. 
Yeah. You effectively the same, like way better liquidity. You know, you're not playing this like game of like, oh, maybe in like two or four or six years, I'll be able to like actually, you know, do something with this. Um, like it's no longer clear that the private markets are extremely undervalued. Whereas a year ago, I thought that was the case. Like you you had amazing project raising at like 30, 40, 50 million, you know, FDV for the seed or the A. Um, like the, the minimum now is like 100. I know. So, yeah, it, it's sort of a losing dynamic for everyone, even those founders. Like you, you have to grow, like the expectations if you're raising at an inflated valuation are so high. You have to deliver so much. And inevitably when there's some, bump in the road or the next bear market or whatever you, you're probably gonna have to raise like it you know best case like uh what's it like not a down round but basically same valuation and worst case a down round that's what most people do and it just sucks it's so brutal it just wipes out a whole bunch of employees equity uh morale is terrible i don't know it's kind of a lose-lose so I, I talked with a couple other fund managers this week and their perspective was like you know like, is it the right time to do venture right now? Maybe you sit out for six months and try to let it cool off. Um, I think yes and no. I think what else is coming is generally like a crypto fund uh, replenishment. Like, it seems like yeah. most LPs are like pretty bullish, pretty open, you know, to investing. And, you know, you're going to have all the major funds re-raise and that doesn't do anything for the floor. It only increases it. I know. I mean, it's kind of, you know, what we were talking about, the downside of this Trump uh, nihilistic low interest rates capitalism is this, like valuations that don't make sense. And you have to figure out what you want to do about it. Because I, I agree. I don't think it's getting any less crazy from here. Probably base case maybe is that it's stagnant for a little bit or chopped sideways, but I don't know. I, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the law of physics dictate that like, you know, things are not going to go just like up only because there's only so much liquidity for, for people to like get in and out. Um, I think both Michael and I have just been very impressed by the ETFs relative to, to basically everything else. Like <laughs> if these flows increase, like I think that's annualized, you know, like 25 to 50 billion of inflows. Yep. Like we're talking about real money. Let's, let's talk about the ETFs. I'd love to get your guys' take. So these are the, I don't know if you guys can see this from, um, this is Eric Balkunas, but you can actually see flows split out by the newborn nine, which is what he's been calling these, these new ETFs. So, you know, the total net inflows, it looks like, um, is 1.2 billion. It looks like now, um, XGBTC or B3 billion. I, they've also taught both Eric and James have talked quite a bit about, the volume like the total volume now is over 11 billion traded which is like a stupendous amount there were analysts before these all launched that were predicting 10 billion dollars worth of trading volume in the first year so you know truly like a, a really record-breaking i mean that was like a very pretty bearish um estimate i would guess but and then i guess as you've got probably like many predicted you've got uh blackrock the ibit in the lead um over a billion dollars worth of assets now uh, so congratulations to BlackRock. Not a huge surprise there. Then you've got Fidelity in a close second at 882 and uh, Bitwise um, in third place at 373 million. So, yeah, what do you guys, what's your guys take on the performance in sort of week one of the ETFs? Very positive. Um, I think it's no surprise that you see iShares Fidelity at the top, just 
think about their respective uh, sales forces and what they're able to do from a marketing perspective and just like how much access they have. Um, phenomenal to see Bitwise in third place. And I think that that, you know, hats off to them. They've been charging up the hill for <laughs> how many years? since 2017. And um, the recognition, I think, in this in this respect is like pretty incredible to have like Fidelity or BlackRock, Fidelity, and then Bitwise as the top three ETFs. The thing that kind of boggles my mind is, okay, let's look at Grayscale in terms of net flows per day. Mm -hmm. And then let's look at it volume per day. And just keep in mind, you know, uh, probably going to mess this up, but I think Bitwise is at 20 basis points or 24 basis points. Uh, Fidelity and BlackRock are in the like 25 to 30 range. And they've got like kickers where there's a certain, you know, amount of time and assets where there is no fees. Anyways, um, all of that's to say Grayscale is at 150 basis points. And if you have net outflows of 450, but your volume is 1400, give or take on day four, that means that people are still buying this, which Mm -hmm. in my mind makes no sense. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a net new buyer, why would you be buying Grayscale GBTC right now? I, I would have imagined like Grayscale is basically playing the game of, sure, we expect billions to flow out, but we expect, you know, the mass majority of the 28 billion or 29 billion that we had to stay in. And we're only reducing our fees 25% down to 150 bips so that we can continue to like make payments on the debt that we owe. And maybe we'll have more products eventually, but people are going to just kind of be stuck in GBTC. And like, that's the business game that we're playing. But it seems to me like there are new people coming into GBTC. Like, I don't know if you guys have a different read that that kind of boggles my mind. I mean, imagine what this looks like without GBTC net outflows. Yeah. It's crazy. For, for sure. Yeah, we can. <clears throat> yes, we, we can imagine what that would look like. And eventually the GBT outflows will stop. I, I think it'll probably be, you know, a period of time, like weeks to maybe months for it to continue to kind of bleed out. And then it'll, you know, asymptote towards some number, which we'll see. But I, I just mean like, you know, imagine what it would look like if GBTC's inflows were coming into BlackRock or Fidelity, because there, there must be inflows if there's this much volume. Hmm. So uh, just a couple quick responses there. One to just underscore the point about Bitwise. For folks who don't know, one thing that might not even be apparent, obviously Bitwise is crypto native. They've been working on this for a long time. They just have such a great team. Like they they really are. This is like an example of like the good guys winning. So shout out to Bitwise. Um, but the, the other point, and uh, Michael, just in response to why uh, Grayscale might be doing this, just listening to Eric and James volume, I mean, the amount they they were coming in with such a stupendous head start. Like if you look at GLD, which is the primary ETF for gold, that's not an inexpensive product. There are many better uh, ETF products for gold like IAU. But once you have that head start in AUM and once volume starts to concentrate around an asset, like institutions, the primary decision maker for them is going to be liquidity. So that's probably what they're banking on here. So, yeah, totally understand. And, you know, it's not just direct inflows and outflows that create volume. It could be existing holders who want to put that up, you know, as collateral for something. You know, other people on the other side take that collateral and trade with it. So, like, I I completely understand that volume can come from other sources. But there is like a a multiple difference in terms of like a basically a 5x difference in terms of, you know, where these fees are relative to, you know, the other major players. so it's it 
I, I don't know. It, it, it still boggles my mind that they're at that high of fees. I agree. Yeah. It's, and ironically, actually, it's probably, you could trace that, uh, why that is to the, to the SEC's handling of this, right? Because that's why GBTC was so successful because they didn't allow an ETF and they kind of gave Grayscale this head start. So just another thing to thank uh, Gary Gensler. And the, you know, the whole cash create versus in-kind create. Um, yeah. There, yeah. There's going to be a lot of stuff that, I mean, that's the other thing too, is like, so uh, I can't remember. I don't think we talked about this, but um, ProShares has come out with, uh, and and I know, oh, I think it was Van Eck or maybe even somebody, BlackRock for Fidelity, maybe came out with like, a covered call strategy ETF for Bitcoin now. I mean, we're going to get like inverse strategies. We're going to get leverage strategies. We're going to get uh, in a few months, it sounds like, you know, there's potential that uh, the 19.4Bs for options on, you know, these ETFs um, will will go live, which means you can write options in, you know, traditional financial markets on basically Bitcoin. Um, so I, I think the diversity of product is about to explode. Um, and this isn't even counting, you know, other assets other than BTC and, and, you know, we'll see where that lands too. But, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be a lot of things that come out and go live in the next six months. Hey everyone. Wanted to give a quick shout out to the wormhole foundation. If you are a bell curve listener, you know, that transferring across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That's why we are super pumped to have partnered with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. The Wormhole Protocol connects over 30 blockchains and six different runtimes, including Solana, Sui, Ethereum, Layer 2s, and more. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. You can claim that by just going down into the show notes and clicking on the link. All right, guys, on with the show. What do you guys think about I mean, it's been interesting. Like, we've been talking about Larry Fink, obviously, as soon as the iShares filing for the spot ETF became public, he's been talking more positively about crypto post, um, you know, conflict in the Middle East. He called Bitcoin or he called crypto a flight to safety asset or something like that. But recently, he's been really on the warpath about two things, which is the ETH ETF. So he's very, very positive about an ETH ETF. Um, and he's very positive, loves this idea of tokenization. Um, and actually the direct quote, which sort of made me laugh was, uh, tokenization cures, solves all corruption. <laughs> it's like, he I gave can, that quote. Firsthand that that is not the case I know, I know. Uh, in the industry. Yeah, me either. But you know, what do you think is the, and I mean, even just like, this sounds silly, but like, if you look at the Van Eck Twitter account or the Franklin Templeton Twitter account about like they've got laser eyes on the Twitter account. They've like given the, these were things that they, they seem small and stupid, but to me, it just says this is a gradual attempt from TradFi to be more accepting and like lean into crypto. Um, I don't know. It doesn't seem like a small thing that a financial institution like that, like multiple trillions of dollars in AUM would just allow laser eyes and the intern to take control of the Twitter account. But do you guys think this that this cycle, I mean, do you think this means anything? Like, is this materially going to change, you know, what types of institutions are involved in this cycle? Or is it just kind of like, yeah, he's doing the tour and, you know, they're going to say stuff like this. I, I think it's honestly, it depends on who wins the, uh, 
the Bitcoin ETF race or the other ETFs as well. I, I think right now it's like the starting gun has been fired. You've got, you know, BlackRock and Fidelity obviously off to the races, GBTC competing, Bitwise competing, you know, even uh, Franklin Templeton, you know, $1.5 trillion AUM, they're still competing. I, I think eventually, and, you know, Eric and James have talked about this, a lot of people ultimately drop out if the Bitcoin, if their ETFs are profitable or it's very clear that there are certain winners. I don't think, you know, people like Larry Fink are going to step out and make these types of claims, mostly because if you think about Larry Fink's track record, and we've talked about this before, but he has a pretty dark stain of, of ESG on his record over the last mm -hmm. 10 years. And I mean, that's falling apart, you know, and has been falling apart for the last few years. Um, I think that he needs to try to find a new narrative and a new chapter that he's going to push forward. It could be tokenization, but the like, or the uh, the Franklin Templeton laser eyes, I think is just like a, at least for the time being, a marketing gambit. Yeah. yeah. I, I much prefer the BlackRock commercial, <clears throat> you know, hair, neat, guy in a suit, soft jazz playing in the background. He's explaining why Bitcoin is the digital gold that everyone's been looking. It's like, these products are not bought, they're sold. And BlackRock, Salesforce, and all of the commercials that they're doing, I think are hugely positive for the space. And like, you know, we have something for right now, you know, buy the Bitcoin ETF, buy the ETH ETF, blah, blah, blah. But like, there needs to be like a forward looking, what does this become in several years? And that's like the tokenization pitch. It's kind of like, you know, ChatGBT is the app for now for people to try. And then in the future, we're going to be replacing jobs and creating robots. Like you need something for now and then you need to pitch the long-term vision. And and Larry Fink is is dialed in. And to Michael's point, like if the political winds are blowing in a different direction and you're the ESG guy, that's going to be tough. So, you know, he's a, he's a savvy operator and he's starting to calibrate like, hmm, maybe I should reposition this a little bit. Mm. yeah i've that commercial we can link it in the show notes it's a really good it's like totally different way to market bitcoin to a completely different audience and the way i describe it is it's boomer juice it, it reminds me of all the other etf commercials i've seen like vague safe you kind of know what's going on seems like a nice guy like that that goes so far like, I love Franklin Templeton, but I don't think the laser eyes are bringing in any new people. No, it's not. I That's what I think is... You're pandering. Yeah, it's kind of, But it's... I mean, think about the how bureaucratic an institution like Franklin Templeton is to allow that to happen, the level of buy-in that you need. And what it tells... What it sort of tells me also is, like, they see a different customer than, than uh, BlackRock. I mean, you could infer that, right? That's a leap, but... The the I, I will say Jenny Johnson, who's the CEO of Franklin Templeton, has come out, you know, been on stage talking about tokenization, talking about how it's the future of finance. Like institutionally, I think Franklin is ahead of the curve in terms of where most financial institutions are are currently looking at the landscape right now. I, and I know like they've got a, a crypto venture arm um, that we've talked to. They're they're very much in the weeds, investing in things, building things. Um, so not to say that they're not doing anything they're, They definitely are, but just the laser eyes to, you know, to the point, it's not like they're bringing in a bunch of new people who are going to buy ETFs with laser eyes. That's just pandering to the existing audience. You're right. I totally agree. Um, 
All right. I want to actually move on to a, you know, while we've all been very focused on the ETFs and uh, markets and stuff like that these last couple of weeks, there's actually been some pretty sizable movement on the regulatory front. And there is like a more immediate case to dial into that's relevant for crypto, which is Coinbase versus the SEC. But actually, there's a, a much larger, extremely important administrative doctrine, uh, the Chevron doctrine, which is talking about getting overturned. So can we actually start at the Chevron doctrine level? Because I think that's going to inform more of the the microcosm of the SEC versus Coinbase. So um, can you guys just kind of give like an overview of what this doctrine is and why it's so critical? Yep. Uh, so Chevron was a case, I think, from 1984 uh, that went to the Supreme Court and is pretty innocuous case that was decided um Basically, in, in favor of the NRDC, which is National Resource uh, Defense Fund and, or Defense Coalition. I can't remember what the last word is. It's council, but council, yeah. Um, basically, the Chevron Doctrine, as it became known afterwards, and also I'm not, you know, a lawyer, nor do I, you know, know very much about this other than what we have read about this doctrine. Um, but the doctrine basically says um, when there's ambiguity in how the laws are to be uh, interpreted, the ambiguity is up to the, the administrators who are in charge of enforcing that law. And so this is the executive branch. You could think of um, the NRDC as looking at um, natural resource uh, regulations. And, you know, obviously Chevron ob- comes up against a number of those things. Uh, in their creation of uh, you know, oil and gas products. But the idea is if there's ambiguity, it's kind of like tie goes to the administrator uh, in terms of how to look at you know, these different rules and regulations. Um, and in the case of uh, overturning it, there are a couple of cases actually that are kind of coalescing around whether or not that that is fair or whether or not that is um, in the eyes of the, of the defense an overreach of the executive branch to have more powers than the constitution originally you know, sought to give. Um, and overturning the Chevron doctrine would be something that probably looks to have a court adjudicate whether or not, you know, these different ambiguities in terms of how rules and laws are, are interpreted and, and then enforced, um, have a court system decide, you know, the interpretation of them as that relates, um, Coincidentally, yesterday there were um, oral arguments for a motion to dismiss the SEC Coinbase uh, lawsuit, which was you know filed last summer. Um, the The basis of the argument is um, an interpretation of what is a security using the Howey test, um, and, and there are a, num- a number of other other nuances in that case. And I, I listened to a fair portion of it, um, <clears throat> and basically it's you know there's the four prongs of the Howey test. And um, each side is coming to the court and saying, there is ambiguity here. We're talking about a a 1930s law to regulate 2010s and 2020s technology. Um, We need clarity. Um, And so on the same day that uh, SCOTUS is hearing oral arguments for the Chevron doctrine, um, we also have in New York, you know, Coinbase SEC uh, initial oral arguments for the first proceeding of that case. And you can imagine if the SEC, if Chevron doctrine were to be overturned, institutions uh, potentially like the SEC 
would have to go, would have the ability to be asked questions in court, whether or not, you know, the ambiguity as it relates to previous laws or rules and regulations should be interpreted one way or another. Um, and so that's that's kind of why this is important and obviously applies not to just the SEC, but any sort of administrative uh, agency within the executive branch um, as it relates to ambiguity within laws. And, you know, not every single law, especially something that was written decades ago, uh, can be directly applied to something that exists today, especially with the speed of technology. And so the argument against it is how can we possibly have clarity and why should we go to the court system every time there's ambiguity for something like how we should regulate AI? Like, obviously, Congress isn't moving as fast as technology is for that. So there, there are arguments to both sides. But given, you know, the 6-3 nature of, of SCOTUS right now, it seems like Chevron um, and the doctrine uh, that, it re- that it represents is, is potentially going to be held in question. Yeah. And, and the, the Chevron case, like just to underscore, again, not a crypto story at all, but you know, if you if you even just look up the Chevron doctrine on Wikipedia, you know, it's cited as one of the most important decisions in a U.S. administrative law. It's been cited on thousands of cases since its issuance in, yeah, 1984 was the year. And it's it's really incredible to hear, like you can look at, um, if you just Google what's been going on, like some of the quotes from, from this judge, uh, who's Catherine Polk. Uh, Phyla is you know her name. Uh, that, that that that's for uh, Coinbase SEC, not Chevron. Coinbase SEC. Yeah, um, but like she, what she's reiterating is stuff that you've heard from crypto people for a really long time. Basically saying, you know, I'm concerned that what you're asking for is far too broad. Uh, you know, basically under, you know, there's we're just all like the exact quote here is we're all just afraid that you have so few limitations. Uh, noting under this logic that collectibles or commodities could be regulated as securities. Yeah, the biggest soundbite that came out of yesterday was a mutual agreement that tokens that as themselves are not securities. It is the only it is only the format in which they are sold that is held in question as to whether or not those are investment contracts, which is a huge recognition. I mean that that's basically what was decided in, you know, the Ripple summary judgment as well, which is that there are ways in which you can sell something that is an investment contract like if it's a private transaction. But if it's happening on secondary markets, which is the argument of Coinbase, those are not considered investment contract transactions, and therefore it's not the sale of securities. Um, so, and that was a mutual agreement with both the SEC and Coinbase. So some of the philosophical underpinning of of like the arguments to overturn Chevron is that uh, it makes Congress lazy and it makes the regulators lazy. So, like. Congress passes a somewhat ambiguous statute to regulate securities. You know, doesn't doesn't speak to any of the nuanced points that Michael mentioned, you know, is a token a security in which circumstance? And then they hand it off to the regulators, and the regulators have the Chevron doctrine, which allows them to interpret it broadly. And so one thing that's interesting about regulatory agencies is a lot of them have what are called administrative courts. These are not real courts. These are owned and administered courts by the SEC where, you know, if you can find or if there's a civil judgment, you know, you go to SEC court and and guess what? Like most of the time you're you're guilty Um, because it's run by the SEC. But, you know, the whole thing about Coinbase taking the SEC to actual court is like the SEC then needs to go in front of a judge and make the arguments and prove why it's security or non-security or whatever. And obviously, a lot of the liberal arguments on this are like, you know, throwing out this statute would would throw everything into chaos and it would force every judge to effectively be a policymaker and like 
imagine, you know, the uh, the district courts in Texas with the unregistered security question, probably a lot more favorable than the district courts in like New York City. And so like, there's also this weird geographic element to it. Mm-hmm. And and I, I do think like, <clears throat> if you like really kind of zoom zoom out and think about like where we are in history, um, I, I think that the Jimmy Carter Reagan uh, part of history is like pretty relevant here. Um, Jimmy Carter, really high inflation, really unpopular president, pretty old, you know, pretty unpopular. Then you have Reagan come in and you have this, you know, massive deregulatory boom. He basically deregulates everything. And, you know, his famous line from his campaign is like the most dangerous uh, sentence that you can ever say is that I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And, and like, you know, like, he obviously went he, he he actually predated the Chevron doctrine and so he went kind of regulation by regulation and cut them. And he did it pretty quickly. This is like if this happens, this terraforms a lot of the existing like uh the Food and Drug Administration, the FTC, the SEC, like all of the regulators that you've ever heard of, like this kind of hits them like peanut butter spread. It's just like you, they all now need to go to court all the time. So I think like there's pretty decent parallels here to, to what's happened historically. And I think you're going to see a lot of growth as a result. You're probably also going to see a lot of people take advantage of this and that'll be negative. Um, and depending on where you fall in the political spectrum, it's like, that's either a huge problem or a huge opportunity. I mean, the, the one kind of argument that they have against this is growth potentially with, with, you know, deregulation. The one argument against this is that it actually stymies growth. Because what it does is it puts everything on pause until you can adjudicate this in court. I mean, and look at how long Ripple took to, to play out, which is, you know, two years, two and a half years. Uh, Coinbase we started in July. We are now hearing, you know, the first oral arguments in a motion to dismiss. And it's expected that that decision will happen sometime in June. Like, it'll take years for Coinbase to work itself out. So, you know, if we overburden the court system... It's also not going to be the best and fastest procedure of making things happen. Um, and so, I, like, all I'm saying is that there are arguments on both sides, I think. Um, but I, I do think, you know, ultimately, the perspective of, you know, having the tie not go to the executive branch um, is kind of the most important one. You have to have a fair, you know, process for adjudicating things that are ambiguous. It is interesting to think about, like, if you wanted to get GDP growth to 50% next year, what would you do? You know, you'd, you'd allow fracking in the backyards of every, you know, home in Oklahoma. You know, you'd like do all this stuff that like is like kind of arguably like cancerous growth that's caused by deregulation. And then there's like a sweet spot where it's like just deregulated enough and the courts are like just slow enough where like you're able to kind of like shoot the or thread the needle. Um I think this is all against the backdrop of like, if you see a different administration in the White House, like a Republican one, like all of these agencies are also going to be much smaller. The courts are going to be slower. The agencies are going to be smaller. There's going to be less resources to try things. And so like, I'm in favor of the Chevron doctrine being like overturned or like changed, but like, I'm definitely not in favor of like the, uh, the free for all. That also seems like a negative. I agree with that. Not not a legal expert and haven't fully thought through all the implications of it yet. But, you know, speaking purely from someone who works in crypto, there there are obviously downsides to, you know, removing the Chevron doctrine. But it's been pretty bad if you've been subject to 
the SEC. And you know, if you believe that crypto is the next big, I don't want to use the word paradigm, but computing platform or or money or technology platform or whatever whatever you want to use, the SEC has been doing its absolute best job to push that out of the U.S. for a pretty long time now. And you guys know it from the perspective of funding new entrepreneurs. Like you can see the activity actually meaningfully moving out of the United States. So. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to root against some form of change because it's been it's been pretty tough. Uh, it's made it harder for us to operate our business, like a lot harder. Um, so, yeah, I'd be in favor of this for sure. Unfortunately, there's no middle ground. It seems in America, it's either like we're regulating this thing out of existence, or like we're taking the gloves off and, and we're just going to go bare knuckle speculating. Um, I think that's also what makes America great. It's like <laughs> it pivots extraordinarily hard from from administration to administration it'd be nice if there was a little bit more consistency you know what else is nice about america is is good governance like checks and balances like this is this was a designing principle of the u.s is having different branches of the government that balance each other out and have a different set of incentives and it's kind of a theory esque actually it like moves very slowly it's supposed to be neutral and flat and that's been a really good strategy for the most part and i feel like if anything this is the u.s returning to its roots a little bit careful yeah. what you wish for <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point um all right michael i know you you've got a hop here but um yeah uh maybe vance we can stay on and just cover the ethereum foundation did a all right see sure. buddy so they do these reddit amas which is actually pretty cool and you know you've got very senior people you know the Donkrads and justin drakes and actually vitalik himself chiming in to just answer questions from the community, which I thought was super cool. And what it gives you, if you're a reader of this, and actually I'll link it, there's a guy named um, Wolfgang who uh, at Bitcoin Suisse, who did a really nice like 30 minute overview of it. Um, so if you don't want to actually read through all the comments yourself, uh, but basically you get to see what people that are high ranking at the Ethereum Foundation are thinking. This doesn't mean it's 100% going to make it into Ethereum's roadmap, but I'm just like curious to see what they're thinking about. So um, one of the one of the things that Donkrad said is, you know, the there's an actual quote about it, but he's very focused on uh, scaling data availability. Um, and they talk, they get in the weeds on what 4844 actually means. Um, but I thought this was an interesting way to, to sum up his thoughts, which was extending Ethereum's data capacity is definitely the most critical thing on our mind in 2024 and probably 2025 as well. So that was, that's kind of interesting because it's taken in conjunction with Vitalik being broadly supportive of an increase in the gas limit on main chain. So Vince, I'd be curious, like what you think about, is that like the right focus from, from your perspective? Were you surprised? Are you kind of in the camp that, you know, Ethereum, the gas, just keep gas where it is. It doesn't matter. People pay fees on the main chain or are you like, Hey, this is low hanging fruit and we should maybe make fees cheaper if we could. I mean, I'm in favor of more experimentation and like ETH transactions just hit uh, all time highs. Like gas is constantly super expensive. Like all of the people who said that fees were going to never return to their previous levels have basically been wrong. Mm-hmm. And now I think it's about just, you know, thinking about what, what the future looks like specifically for ETH L1. It feels like the ETH L2 roadmap, you know, with L2s contributing 20 to 25% of all gas transactions, like that's pretty solid with 4844. Um, and we know a ton of rollups that are just waiting for 4844 to, ro- to launch. So like, I think the cost for roll goes from like a couple million bucks per year for the de- developer operating team to like a couple hundred thousand. And you probably see 10x more of them. 
Um, and with that in mind, like scaling DA um, is smart. I think like I would make the argument that, you know, the most important market for ETH to go after is is money. And <clears throat> I know a lot of people probably disagree with like the ETH is money meme, but it is like arg inarguably the biggest market that you can go after. And so like if you're trying to bootstrap the moneyness of an asset, it's actually helpful to have fees be more expensive for yields to be higher for people to want to stake, for people to want to borrow against the collateral asset. Like if, if your asset of your blockchain is just like, you know, cheap, there's no fees, it's all inflation. People don't really want to use it. Like it's hard to bootstrap that moneyness. And so I think L ETH L1 has arguably done that very well. And now it's about kind of a spreading the asset across all these L2s that are creating supply sinks and B, you know, figuring out how to either recatalyze developer adoption on ETH L1 um, scale up DeFi or the higher, you know, cost, lower throughput applications, um, you know, or doing something like, you know, scaling DA to make it more of a consumer style chain. Like I do think <clears throat> whether it's dank sharding, um, which, you know, is going to come in the next 18 months or 24 months, like we're, we're already at a point where block space is, is basically free if, if you really want it. Um, and so I think it's, Frankly, like a good idea to keep experimenting. Raising gas limit is probably like what I'm most in favor in of. Uh, but like scaling DA is also, you know, interesting. But like it's yeah. good to see the ETH Foundation responding. And they don't respond on Twitter and they don't like shit talk other projects. They just ship stuff. Um, and that's kind of how they roll. The EF, the EF, in my opinion, is phenomenal. Like, I just think in terms of what they've done, stewarding the protocol, the quality of people that are in that organization is incredibly high. And I agree. They never stoop down to any crappy level or anything like that. So, and they're just really, really you know, brilliant people that work there. Um, I, I agree with you on the the money thing. I This is where I would disagree with what I think is the consensus way of thinking about it within the Ethereum Foundation, though, which is... I'm not a huge fan of the ultrasound money. Um, and the reason I'm not a fan of the ultrasound money is, A, it's actually that idea of like hard money is not even that popular within TradFi circles. Like there's this really great quote from uh, Jack Bogle. Eric Balkunas retweeted it this week. He's getting a lot of airtime on the show. Yeah, but this is the Jack Bogle quote. Commodities are a real loser's game. Uh, in the long run, they have no internal rate of return. You buy a commodity. Gold is a good example. You're betting you can sell it to somebody for more than you paid for it. I don't have an intelligent comment about that. It's absolute rank speculation. So, you know, commodities people, people that trade gold and believe in gold, would there are lots of really good fundamentals, first principles, arguments against that. But it's such a pervasive way of how people think about intrinsic value that you can model a stream of return, be that a cash flow, yeah, cash flows of a company, a dividend, or a payment from fixed income. I, this is why I I just really like the yield narrative for. For ETH and what I think the EF people would argue correctly is that that's a little bit of a meme. It's just you're trading value between stakers and holders. And what the EF foundation would want to do is favor the holders, right? It's basically, you know, if you're paying less issuance to the stakers, you're you're implicitly favoring the holders and the returns that would have gone to stakers go to holders instead. And it's more a more tax advantage way almost of collecting that income. I just, I just think that the meme is important. I think the meme of yield-bearing money and the desire for people to to purchase that is so immense. It's just a massive... So I agree with you and the money is the opportunity for ETH, but my own personal opinion on this would be to lean into the to the yield. 
um, narrative. And, and I think that means leaning into the gas limit increase, which is like, you know, when Vitalik passes something down from on high, like usually people get, get the message pretty quick. Um, and like the ETH foundation does from what we've heard agree that like ETH is money is the most compelling narrative and use case. And so like stripping all the fees out of ETH L1, they're not going to do it is my yeah. sense. Um, and like, you think about all the things that ETH has going for it and, you know, all, all, all the problems, um, you know, that, that they've solved and, and that they've yet to kind of, um, deal with like, like an interesting thought experiment is, um, let's just say ETH and Solana switch places, mm. you know, and Solana got all the fees and ETH got all the throughput, who would be in a stronger position? I think Solana would. Because, you know, it has, it would have the moneyness of the ETH ecosystem, it would have the apps, it would have all the DeFi, it would have all the TVL. It's a lot harder to scale and build real economics than it is to just like increase the throughput of your blockchain. It's not a slight against Solana. It's just a, it's just a point about the relative positioning. And I would just say like no other blockchain has ever gotten to profitability on, on a, on a per block basis where there's more demand for the block space and there is supply. And you think about a lot of these blockchains, you know, let's say something like Sol is worth 50 or 60 billion and there's about 7% inflation, you know, that's three and a half billion to 4 billion of selling per year. Like that's a lot. And so, you know, like we were just talking about with unlocks, you know, that slowly grinds on you and like, imagine what ETH would be trading at if it was still proof of work. Like who knows what ETH BTC would be at? M might be negative, you know. Like who who knows? But like, what ETH has going for it is that ETH is money. It, it is block. There's you know thirty forty billion of it locked into DeFi. People want to stake. That's the major narrative. Like whether it's Meath or Steeth or Fraxeth or like any of these other competitors. Like there's a vested interest in acquiring ETH. And like I posted this meme the earlier or, or you know the other day. It's like, what's the best part about restaking? You're going to need ETH for that. And like, you know, like this is, I'm, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here, but like, <clears throat> if you think about a blockchain, you think about a crypto asset, like what is it actually? Is it its consensus network? Is it like the TPS that it has? Is it like the virtual machine that it runs on? No. Yeah. It's literally none of those things. What a blockchain is, is it's its native asset. And what is its native asset? Well, there's two components. There's supply and demand. There's how much of it is being inflated per year. There's how much staking activity there is. You know, supply sinks. There's how much of it is locked into DeFi contracts and that people are willing to use as a collateral asset. And then there's the demand side. You know, like how much is used every day? How much is, you know, bought every day? How much is, you know, spent on gas fees? And like these crypto networks are just their native assets. And something like restaking will that make that a lot more clear where it's like, yeah, I got my ETH staked on L1, but I'm also staking on a bridge and I'm also getting these Oracle tokens. Like it's money. And that is the main thing that I think at some point in time, why ETH will actually flip Bitcoin is because it's actually uses money. Like the hard money meme of like, you just lock it away. I think that's good for some people, but over the long term, the assets that are used more as money, will just have a more heavier supply sink and we'll just trade a lot lighter. Yeah. All right, let me run something by you. And actually, by the way, if people want to explore that idea of like what a blockchain is, there is a really interesting, I'm going to shout out Chris Goes, uh, the founder at Anoma, wrote a really interesting piece on this on incent, uh, intents and an intent-centric topology of what blockchains might look like. 
So his argument is actually a blockchain is four things. There's the actual protocol itself. There's a specific security model, a history, um, which includes the asset. And then there's a community of people who identify as members. And actually, I'm going to plug the next like narrative season of Bell Curve and say that's a big idea that is being explored. It's like what happens when you unbundle those things, because uh, I think it's a pretty interesting idea to think about. But here, here's I have a question for you on the restaking, Vance. So one... Um, and I would love to understand how I'm thinking incorrectly about this, but my, my sense is that there's a direction that ETH could go down, um, which I don't know how actively it's being explored or whatever, but that there would be some kind of staking cap or something like that. There's a desire to limit the amount of um, like the stake staking percentage of Ethereum. For me, what that would do, like if you play that out, what that what ends up happening is people go further and further into restaking. And right now, what Ethereum at least has control over is its monetary policy. It can adjust its issuance rate if it wants to, um, and it can regulate how people, like there are all these proposals for things like two-tier staking. It can sort of, re it's, they're uh, pushing, like they're pushing towards being able to regulate the sort of staking environment and its issuance policy. But if you were to cap that, or you were to severely limit that, you push people out into restaking to seek that yield. And then... That puts Eigenlayer in a position of control. I think that's actually really bullish Eigenlayer because then Eigenlayer can, depending on the parameters that it sets within its platform, it can control, you know, how risk on or risk off the market is for, you know, um, uh, seeking yield. So in a sense, you, I don't know, when I think about, when I tried playing that out, it's like you're, I feel like that's kind of bullish for Eigenlayer. Let, let me let me let me stop you right there. So so what's the bear case? What's the opposite of your argument? So your argument basically assumes that like this is kind of like a bearish restaking argument, but like let's just play it out. Um, restaking is powerful when there's a bunch of AVSs, alternative validator services that want to give tokens to ETH restakers to go off and you know bootstrap their ecosystem. So like, you know, maybe an Oracle provider, maybe like a DA provider, maybe like, um, you know, a bridge. First of all, I've not seen any good pitches for AVSs yet. I'm, I'm still waiting for, for good pitches. And like a lot of it is like, if I'm a talented team that's built an amazing bridge, someone, someone like Socket, like I got my own tokens and that's my value accrual and that's what I want. And I don't really want to give those away to other people. Um, just for the honor of being considered like a restake service, like let, let's let's just even go simpler. Eigen DA. Let's assume <clears throat> that Eigen DA trades at you know whatever Celestia is at, like fifteen billion. Not even the Eigen Layer token, just like Eigen DA. ETH right now is you know what three hundred three hundred fifty billion. You know, and let's say that the first year inflation of that fifteen billion dollar token is twenty percent. So they're going to give away, you know, 3 billion of tokens to, you know, what, whatever, like, you know, 120 billion of, of staked ETH. That's not that much yield. That's like not even enough to move the needle. And so like the position of control that Eigenlayer would be in presupposes that like they have all these amazing AVS services where the tokens are trading at high FDV and, you know, the unlocks never come. I think there's like a, there's like a more uh, cogent argument where it's like, there's going to be a lot of um, like, you're going to have like the barbell. You're going to have a lot of people staking ETH. Cause it's like very consistent three and a half, 4%. 
And then you're going to have a lot of people farming like 200% APY or like, you know, it's a very small number of people farming like 200% APY, like crazy ABS, like almost like quasi like DeFi summer Ponzu scheme, not like Ponzi schemes, but like they're just giving away a lot of tokens and like the unlocks are coming. Like it just doesn't feel like there's like in that middle of that curve, like the thing that will give a lot of APY to a lot of people on the restaking layer. Okay, this is a really good point. So this was my question as well, is what is the demand on the AVS side going to be? And I still, so we did an episode with Sriram and Zaki about how uh, a lot of Cosmos chains are exploring eigenlayer restaking as a, as a method of security. And you, you should people should go and listen to the portion where Zaki describes from his perspective as a protocol founder, the value proposition, because... Like to, to summarize, basically, he was like, look, here's the myth about recruiting a set of validators. It's super easy, like really, really easy. I can, you know, I could do that in one day. I mean, he's like has a reputation in a network, but like even for a relatively new founder within Cosmos, super easy to get a network of validators. What's really hard is to get a network of validators that will continue to stake with you over bear and bull cycles. And so what you end up having to do is like way overpay for, he's like, I did all these schemes. Like I thought about all this stuff where I like how to get these people to basically lock up their capital with me instead of doing something else. So I would frame restaking as lowering the opportunity cost of capital on staking on alternative protocols. So instead of being like, I can either stake on ETH or I can stake in sommelier, it's like I can lock up my stake in ETH and then opt into additional incremental yield in all of these protocols. And like, look, like, why wouldn't I keep doing that in a bear market? It's like, okay, I've still got my ETH stake here, but why would I take this thing out? And that was the value proposition from his standpoint. But, but I agree with you. That is the big question. And then the other question is, is there an adverse selection when it comes to shared security? So this is a big problem for interchange security in Cosmos, because it's exactly what you said. It's like, if I'm a cream of the crop, new application, maybe Socket or someone else, I don't need it. Like, I am actually really like the sexy new to protocol. It's going to be no problem for me to convince like a network of like long-term validators to stake with me. But if I'm like a shitty product project and maybe I can't convince those people, then I need to go to the hub in Cosmos or Eigenlayer and restaking. Maybe there's an adverse selection problem that shared securities providers end up having. Uh Adverse adverse selection is 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 like, I think they're 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 related. It's like adverse selection and then scale, because um, like if you have the cream of the crop best projects who you know get ETH restaked on them, who knows? Maybe maybe their market cap is, you know, altogether a hundred billion dollars, and you're giving out twenty billion of incentives a year, and like to the hundred and fifty billion of staked ETH, that's like another ten percent. It's like holy shit, like we're cooking with gas now. But like, you know, if yeah. it's the other thing where it's like, you know, you add up all the Cosmos ecosystem projects market cap and you're looking at like five billion and they're giving away 10 percent, uh, you know, and maybe maybe less, you know, in a year. It's like, you know, you have 500 million of incentives going to 150 billion of you know staked ETH doesn't move the needle. And so, like, I think what you're going to have is you're going to have like the the vanilla ETH stakers that are like, you know, maybe you know, putting it in Aave to boost the yield another 1% because like the lending APY actually scales. And then you're going to have like the crazy DGENs farming 300%, maybe adverse selected projects 
Um, and I think that will be healthy because like, that's kind of what happens on crypto Twitter anyways. It's like, oh yeah, you're making 5%. I'm making 500%. It's like, oh, that's bullish ETH, you know? But like, again, you're going to need ETH for that. So I, I think it's like very hard to game through like what happens here. Um, but I think no matter what, like the assets that are used to restake and that can transcend their consensus layer and their TPS and their, in my opinion, the shit that like doesn't matter. Um, I think those are going to be very bullish for those assets. I, I actually, to maybe sum up the way that I think about it, I'm actually, I think, so bullish on restaking. I think it's such an obvious value proposition, actually, that my my original concern was that it actually becomes so successful that it co-ops a good amount of Ethereum's control over its own monetary policy. That was my, I, I don't know, that's my... And Shriram has said on the show that his eventual endgame for Eigenlayer is to be enshrined within the protocol. So maybe that ends up being a non-issue, but... Um, I mean, the East Foundation and those guys are like coordinated. Um, And I think you're going to see, I mean, it just depends on how successful the initial launch is. But like, let's just, I mean, another thought experiment. Let's say, uh, let's say Celestia was trading at 2 billion instead of, you know, 15 or 20. Mm -hmm. If that was the biggest project that was going to be able to be restaked, that would be like bearish. And so like a lot of, it's like, you know, um, chicken and egg, but like if the market caps of the tokens that are to be farmed are high, it makes it more likely to be successful. But you can also have like this moment where if, if it's not a high market cap token, it's not driving APY for a lot of people, you know, restaking could be like, meh, you know, it's just yeah. for like the DGENs. It's like why institutions don't farm, you know, fucking tokens Um, because they're just like, I don't want to get rugged. It's not worth my time. It's not scalable. It's not repeatable. Um, I'm not bearish on Eigenlayer. I'm just like trying to paint the full picture of like what I think the the math is. Totally. Um, I've got another. So just maybe in closing here, I do think it'll be really interesting to see what happens in terms of liquid liquid staking penetration on Celestia. So uh, Stride has, uh, shout out to Stride, I think what is probably the most comprehensive proposal thus far. Uh, It's live on the Celestia forum. We can link it in the show notes if anyone wants to take a look. But the the stake rate, like the overall adoption of staking in Ethereum and other proof of stake chains is really different. And there are very different views on what the optimal amount should be in Cosmos and Solana, which were proof of stake from day one, much higher. Um, and in Ethereum, it's much lower. It's like 80% around in Cosmos and Solana, but the penetration of liquid staking is extremely low. So it's like, I mean, you know better than me on Jito, but I think it's like 4% penetration for liquid staking within Solana. And it's roughly the same in Cosmos, but it's extremely high in Ethereum. And one of the, the relics for why that is, is like the user experience, because there was such a long period of the merge where you could stake, but there was a lockup. It was kind of this weird one-off event, which the UX of being able to trade in and out of your stake was very, very compelling. So there was really high adoption of things like Lido. It'll be really interesting to see Celestia um, and and whether or not uh, liquid stake ends up liquid staking ends up getting really adopted or where that sort of percentage overall shakes out. Because maybe the reality is just that um, you know there's a couple reasons to liquid stake. 
in what assets are attractive to be liquid staked, but maybe the desire to maybe a lot for enough people, it's just good enough to like set it and forget it and stake and get your yield. Maybe the market for people that want to take that liquid stake and like loop it in some kind of borrow lend protocol and lever it up is like not that high. Like I don't do that. And it's not because of the risk. Like I'll buy meme coins and NFTs and shit. I have no problem doing any of that, but that's easy. I can just click it. But to me, for me, I got to go do this active thing where I like loop it in a protocol. Like I'm not doing that. That's not, that not hard, that. bro. Come on. What is this Dude, like, I just don't. I won't. But like, maybe I'm a good, maybe I'm mid curving the shit out of this. But like, for me, it feels like something active. I don't understand I, leverage. I think, I think you're mid curving this. Like, I, I think, I think I've had be. an open maker vault for probably like the past six years. Um, and it's like just dead simple. You loop it and you just sit there and like your liquidation price is pretty low and like, you know, do you want to buy a meme coin or do I want to have like two or three X liberty? This is like my personal account. Like, you know, it's like pretty clear, like the meme coin is going to go to zero, but like, if I'm just sitting here for the next 10 years, like I feel pretty good about having something that's looped. And the yeah. thing that's like super important, that's weird about Solana and it, it maybe, you know, other blockchains is like, you have these, like these like centralized validator companies um, so people like Figment or like there's a lot of like Solana specific ones and they'll they'll basically like take the Solana and they'll stake it. And that doesn't do anything for the network. It's just sitting in a centralized validation, you know, validator company. And there's, you know, those assets are not liquid. They're not moving around on the chain. They're not generating fees. They're not bootstrapping DeFi TVL. They're not bootstrapping the moneyness of the asset. They're not being traded for NFTs. They're just like locked away. And so like, that's just like, I mean, Gito is breaking this and like that is I think one of the main reasons that Solana is going to be very successful over time is a higher liquid staking rate um, as price ramps and as like unlocks happen and as centralized validator services kind of like just figure out that they're not going to get as much MEV or they're not going to be as competitive. But like having liquid staking penetration rates be high, I'm like bullish on most blockchains that are having high liquid staking um, because it just speaks to like People are using the assets on chain and there's a culture of, again, bootstrapping the moneyness of these things. And like most of these networks do not have enough fees to ju justify their fundamental value. And so like you better have some sort of moneyness that's associated with a token to carry your, your valuation premium. Maybe that's like left curving or mid curving or whatever, but like, I think that stuff is very important. I don't think so. Uh, I would object. A lot of people will like the one thing I would maybe like we have an analytics product if you go to our analytics product the first thing you'll see on eth is block space profitability like it's a it's an incredibly important metric i it's a, maybe it's a semantic argument but i don't love people being like hey this is the profit and i'm going to do a dcf on eth like i just i think that's relative i think that's a good way of looking at companies where you can the assumption the reason why there's such a focus on cash flows because that can be reinvested like i just view eth as a commodity i think most of these things are as commodities and and uh my long-term thesis is like a return to things that look more like commodity like money like if you look at the history of money eh, sometimes money is look more commodity like sometimes it's look more credit like i think this is a return to more commodity like money things bitcoin eth and then um yeah we'll see like solana i think if it wants to go down that route they're gonna have to do their own like 1559 this year and they there will be decisions made um, to prioritize uh, sold the asset or the network or whatever. And Celestia is going to have to do the same thing. So I don't know. I'm just very interested to see how it all shakes out. I could see it going a bunch of different directions. Um, but my framework for a little while has been this is a digital commodity boom. 
like a commodity boom like the 70s or 80s or the early 2000s yeah and that's what this is so yeah so i'm i mean dude i've i i was just thinking about this week this industry is so dynamic so fast moving i don't see how you can work anywhere else at this point like totally I mean, it's so dynamic. It's so fast moving. I think um, an orthogonal point to that is like everyone is always focused on the things that are changing. Yeah. And in my mind, at least, you know, I opened a Coinbase account in 2012. Um, A lot of things don't change. A lot of things stay the same. And like having an appreciation for that, like here we are, you know, 11 years later, we have a Bitcoin ETF. Like we have Larry Fink shilling the ETH ETF. Like, you know. As much as things change, things like stay the same to me, um, which is cool. Because like if you have the ground always shifting underneath you, it's just fucking annoying. Um, but it's like a nice balance of like things that are meant to be permanent and last forever and that are sustainable and like all these amazing new experiments. It's a great industry. Um, we did a uh, our annual kickoff this week and we walked through. We did this at the beginning of January, uh, January 20th of like the four stages of a bear market and we did it for a bull market as well and it's a lot of fun but it is like there was a macro guy that i was talking to who described like what uh retail traders are like in a market which is basically like three-year-olds it's like when you show a three-year-old something like everything's for the first time it's like oh my god that's the best thing ever or they're like they're crying and like super upset and i don't know if you've never been through one of these cycles it is really fun but you definitely want to remind yourself to like keep a cool head and it's not always going to be great forever. It's not always going to be shitty forever. Like you definitely want to, but if you've never been through that before, it takes you on an emotional roller coaster, which is a good experience in and of itself. It's also fun in a different way. I, I got to run. All right, buddy. All right. This was fun. Talk, man. Cheers. Later. Talk to you later. Hey everyone. Mike here. If you're a bell curve listener, you know that transferring assets across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That is why we're incredibly excited to have teamed up with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Take you, get your free NFT.